for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the program. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're live and direct here on TNT, uh, today's News Talk. Uh, we're going to bring on to the program our, our roving correspondent, Basil Valentine. We'll try to link him up uh, in the background as well uh, to get his take on some of the biggest stories right now, both domestically uh, and internationally, and a great uh, analysis and very much enjoyed the discussion with Benjamin Rubenstein uh, in the first hour and it's great to get not just his take on what's happening uh, in the Middle East and the effect that's going to have on the situation, but also talk about the political dimension uh, in the United States and also further afield. So that's something we like to do on this program is not just the analysis in terms of geopolitical strategy foreign policy, but looking at the practical political mechanisms as well, the flux happening with election cycles, also how that fits into the mix. So we're trying to build a multivariate analysis here. It's very dynamic and it's flowing along the timeline right now. Uh, so there are opportunities for a lot of countries to make moves and sometimes it's elections and impending elections that are going to make that happen. Certainly that's the case with the United States, but not with every other country. Other countries have more continuity in terms of their leadership. Uh, fortunately, we uh, we change them over every four years in the U.S. Sometimes that's great for domestic policy, but internationally it means that uh, they're trying really hard to get things done in a very short window. Uh, and then sometimes that means overthrowing governments and destabilizing countries. Uh, in just 12 or 24 months. Got to get it done before the next election. Isn't this the United States in a nutshell? Uh, I don't know, for the last 70, 75 years. That's the problem, isn't it? And uh, other countries don't have that problem, which uh, I think that's reflected in the uh, aggressive foreign policy that we uh, have come to know and not love so much, especially in recent years. We'll talk more about that in a moment uh, as well. We'll try to connect Basil Valentine uh, when we get him on the line. So looking forward to speaking uh, to him. Uh, as well. And also, Christian James is going to be joining us very shortly. We'll hopefully connect him uh, really at about 20 past uh, the hour to get his take on a couple of major stories there. We talked about that nexus uh, between Israel and India. It's becoming more prevalent, uh, not just the political support with the uh, Modi and the BJP uh, regime with the Zionist entity uh, in the Middle East. Uh, there's always been a close synergy there uh, between these two uh, governments, uh, but now it's becoming more more pronounced. Uh, there's more sort of, you could say, camaraderie somehow uh, between the uh, Nendra, Nendra Modi uh, regime in India, government regime, depending on you want to use those pejoratives or not. Uh, we try to probably better to steer away from that. In fact, funny enough, I was just looking at the AP handbook uh, for press guides, uh, looking at these the Bible for, you know, good professional reporters, you could say. Uh, so who turned me on to that book? I think it was actually a veteran reporter working for PBS uh, and some of the big networks said, you got to get this book. It's got the style sheets in it. What was interesting was you're looking at the actual press handbook. Uh, so this would be the edition uh, updates from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And it said they, 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 they recommend as, as a professional journalist, you not use the term regime. It's very specific because it's a pejorative. 
But we see this time and time again. Now, uh, when do you use the word regime? Well, people say the Assad, the Assad regime, the Qaddafi regime, uh, the, the the Putin regime. So I guess, you know, Chavez, Maduro regime. Uh, if somebody is, falls foul of Western foreign policy, uh, it's more likely that government or that leader is going to be labeled as a, quote, regime. Or as the British say, a regime, a regime. Uh, but... Uh, how do you how, how can you really rightly ever use this term it is a pejorative term uh we actually use it strategically uh if you want to use this term in you have a government that's just completely out of bounds with international norms uh, i think you could probably use the term regime and that's not syria okay it's not yemen we're talking about these countries these are uh, actual state actors uh, they're rational they're predictable but then there's one in the Middle East that's not uh, rational and sometimes unpredictable, and that's the state of Israel. So you could just as easily say the Israeli regime, uh, if you want to use the standards that uh, the mainstream media are playing at right now with all the axes of evil countries, labeling all of them as regimes, um, I think I think it's safe to say the Israeli regime. Uh, I think that's suitable. Uh, it is at least more accurate than calling the same thing to the Syrian Arab Republic as an example. So that's an interesting little bit of semantics there. Uh, and we struggle with this, obviously, because there's uh, forces at play uh, in the professional and media circles um, that keep using these. It's just part of the gaslighting that goes along uh, with mainstream uh, media as well. Uh, let's take a quick break in a moment. Actually, no, we're not going to take a break. I think we've got Basil Valentine uh, on the line right now. We'll bring him onto the call. Basil, how are you? Patrick, and good afternoon to our viewers and listeners all around the world. You're looking particularly sharp today, uh, Mr. Valentine. Uh, do appreciate the uh, the look. Uh, there to what are you looking at right now in terms of hard politics though uh, we talked with Benjamin Rubenstein about the complete collapse of confidence in the Labour Party uh, especially over this genocide in Gaza what does that mean where are those voters going to go uh, but just on that UK domestic front right now uh, it's a very different uh, situation that's shaping up uh, in terms of the UK general uh, upcoming than maybe it was six months ago your thoughts well, let's hope so. Um, as you mentioned in your conversation with Benjamin, there's the Rochdale by-election tonight, and the bookmakers are giving George Galloway a sort of 70% chance of winning. He's Ooh. between 7 to 4, 13 to 8 on that kind of um, odds, which represents more likely than not when something is odds on. They reckon he is more likely to be the next MP for Rochdale than all the other candidates combined. The only serious challenger is Azar Ali, nominally the Labour candidate. Of course, the Labour disowned him when he said he thought that Israel had prior knowledge of October the 7th. That these days qualifies as anti-Semitism. So he had to be disowned. Um, the ramifications, of course, of what's going on in Gaza uh, are wide reaching across society. Um, and of course, we had the disgraceful decision by the so-called Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, not to meet with the Reverend Dr. Isaac Munter during his UK visit because Munter had shared a platform with Jeremy Corbyn, lifelong anti-racist, successfully smeared 
as quite the opposite, really the most extraordinary political assassination of our lifetimes. Um, but uh, Welby, after having been widely condemned, rightly so, for this disgraceful decision, uh, a decision described as shameful by the pastor himself, um, has reversed his decision. Welby has climbed down. I think he's got to resign. He tweeted this morning, recently I declined to meet with the Reverend Doctor at Munter Isaac during his UK visit. I apologize for and deeply regret this decision and the hurt, anger and confusion it caused. I was wrong not to meet with my brother in Christ from the Holy Land, especially at this time of profound suffering for our Palestinian Christian brothers and sisters. I look forward to speaking and praying with him next week. Well, you, <laughs> you couldn't wow, get Wow, what a U-turn. Oh, my God. So so all that pressure we put oh, on, Babel, all, all, all the memes, all the shaming on social media, it paid off. That's a massive U-turn by the Archbishop of Canterbury, third, third in line for the seat of power in Britain, technically. Um, that, that's embarrassing. It's kind of a humiliation in, in a way, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. And really, he should resign uh, because it's not good enough. Uh, he should never have obviously made that decision in the first place. Uh, you know, this is about a comprehens as comprehensive a U-turn as you can possibly get. Um, you know, a letter was published in The Guardian a couple of days ago by Christians for Palestine UK. Um, Christians believe Jesus lived and died in solidarity with the suffering and oppressed. The Archbishop's refusal to listen to Palestinian Christians as they cry out for justice is a grave affront to our faith. Well, I don't think you can continue in office as the uh, premier clergyman representing the Church of England behind the head of the church itself, of course, uh, the king. I don't, think, I don't think he can possibly continue in office. So uh, hopefully we can get a a change.org petition or something similar going to have him resign. But of course, the post of Archbishop of Canterbury is one that is effectively in the gift of the prime minister, which means it's effectively in the gift of the deep state. Um, and uh, there's no doubt that uh, Welby's avowed Zionism, uh, which is a, the subject of uh, an episode of Palestine Declassified, I learned yesterday from Chris Williamson. Um, I think that Welby Zionism was one of the reasons he got the job in the first place. So no doubt uh, if he does resign, uh, the civil servants will go running around trying to find another Zionist from amongst the ranks of the senior bishops of the Church of England. I sincerely hope not, but Welby has got to go. Yeah, that's that's a, that's an interesting shake-up. Well, you know, look, if, if you're going to sacrifice... Uh, uh, a few uh, public officials on the, the proverbial uh, block, uh, as it were. I think it is good because it does send a message. Uh, people say, well, what does that mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury? It's kind of a non-starter. It's not going to impact policy or anything. But it is a kind of, uh, you know, major public climb down, condemnation, calls for resignation. So if it does happen, I think that's really important because a lot of these uh, cabinet officials, 
MPs, people who are actually have direct bearing on uh, policy like this, um, they're going to also see this, that they could be next. Uh, or at least there's there's public appetite for this um, sort of, uh, you know, t basically taking some of these people down a notch um, for their positions on some of these issues. So, yeah, I think this is overall positive. Now, uh, internationally right now, uh, you know, what are you hearing right now on the Palestine issue? Uh, Basil, I know you're following this very closely. There's a number of sort of impending disasters. We spoke about some of them with Ben Rubenstein. What are you hearing? Uh, well, you know, Biden's talking about uh, a possible ceasefire. Uh, Rishi Sunak has been urged to use the UK's voice on the UN Security Council to help deliver a ceasefire. This from the Scottish National Party leader in Westminster, Stephen Flynn. Uh, the UK, of course, disgracefully abstained from the last uh, ceasefire resolution before the Security Council. I mean, abstaining is the most cowardly thing you can possibly do. I mean, it's a completely and utterly meaningless position, as the name implies. Um, but I want to pivot to something else that's happening in the UK. Um, the Community Security Trust, the CST, what do you know about that organisation, Patrick? Not a whole lot. <laughs> Tell me, what what is it and, and why is this relevant? Well, it, uh, it's allied to the Israeli state, uh, you know, the uh, work of Professor Miller and others has uncovered all sorts of links between the so-called Community Security Trust, uh, which purports to defend Jewish communities, but in fact is heavily involved in whipping up hysteria and fake claims of anti-Semitism uh, against Palestine solidarity. And they've been rewarded for their lies with another £54 million, awful lot of money, for security. This is in a bid to, and I quote, tackle the utterly sickening rise in anti-Semitism seen in recent months. The Prime Minister announced the funding at the CST annual dinner. I've said before about what a, a ludicrous Zionist uh, Sunak is in. Uh, he said that the, the whole fabric of our nation is under threat. What a load of absolute, total and utter garbage. Uh, the vast majority of these so-called anti-Semitic incidents consist of things like people displaying Palestinian flags and shouting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Um, I would like to see what evidence there is, rather than once again these broad claims and smears that any Jewish people have been attacked for being Jewish. Uh, moreover, um, uh, as we know, at the ceasefire and pro-peace demonstrations, there are increasingly large blocks of Jewish people who do not feel in the least bit threatened by their fellow marchers calling for peace. It's absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. And uh, I, th I think one of the problems um, that they're running into now is they've completely expended all of their political capital uh, in the last couple of months. As you said, Basil, absolutely ridiculous. Kind of cooking the books on, you know, whatever their statistics are for 
I guess, hate crimes or so forth. So any support for uh, or sympathy for the Palestinian people, that's being bracketed as anti-Semitism. Um, so you really can't trust any of the sort of figures that some of these uh, ADL-type organizations are touting uh, because they're conflating all sorts of other normal uh, political opposition activities with uh, you know racism or, as you said, anti uh, Semitism, this uh, sort of broad, broadly defined term. Um, so yeah, that, it, th these NGOs, I think, are going to be uh, hemorrhaging credibility uh, now if they carry this well, yeah, on. Yeah, they're because, hemorrhaging credibility. Yeah. They're certainly not hemorrhaging hemorrhaging cash at the moment. Um, we really need investigations into things like the CST, whose report showed the organization recorded four thousand one hundred and three anti-Semitic incidents in the uk in 2023 i'd like to know uh if you take out the word palestine or the palestinian flag or anything like that from those 4103 how many were actual uh worthy of the name you know uh how many jewish people were attacked for simply being jewish very 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 few i would venture to suggest and i hope of course it's uh, a very low number it should be zero uh but uh this is entirely synthetic this is an entirely fabricated crisis and uh, i'm afraid to say i think a lot of the money that the cst have got will doubtless be used to further the propaganda case on behalf of their masters israel against those expressing solidarity with the palestinian people and against the current genocide it's as simple as that well, there's a lot of pedigree to what you're saying, Basil, and it can be backed up by actual receipts and statistics. So it's not like we're uh, painting an unrealistic picture here. That is the case, as you've uh, outlined there. So people so are going to be weary smoke. of this. We're, so much smoke with this. I mean, the whole article uh, in uh, the standard here, uh, reproduced on ITV, um, it's just a souffle. That's the only way to describe it. It's been followed by record levels of anti-Semitism in this country that are utterly, utterly sickening. Really? Where's the evidence? You know, as Prime Minister, I will lead this government in a long-term effort to strengthen your security. I mean, it's just verbiage for the sake of it. There's no meaningful, there's no substance behind it. Just as was the case with the smears against Corbyn and the Labour Party. It's a scam. Well, if you count uh, the amount of anti-Palestinian statements, threats, uh, I would... I would call that anti-Semitism because the Palestinians are Semites, Semitic people. Absolutely. I mean, are we even allowed to sort of say this publicly uh, or is that sort of truth and logic uh, completely outlawed at the moment? So, yeah, every uh, accusation is a confession. Uh, maybe there are anti-Semitic uh, incidents uh, on the rise, but they're not. Uh, the, the, they're things that are against the Semitic Palestinian people uh, who are not often regarded as Semitic from these same people, pundits, and organizations. And that's part of the major imbalance on this issue. I actually think that's fundamental uh, to what we're seeing, including the genocide right now, green lighting, all that. It's really based on, on that issue as well. But um, that's all we've got time for today. I want to thank you, Basil Valentine, for joining us for some of these key updates and insights. We really appreciate you this week on TNT, today's news talk. Thank you, Patrick. TNT's Tyler Nixon. I think uh, the people behind her, the never Trumpers and the money flowing in, whatever their end game is, it doesn't seem that she'll be dropping out even if she loses her, her own state, which uh, 
kind of gives you a sense of the arrogance of power of people who back uh, the Nikki Haley's of the world where the popular uh, support, popular consent doesn't really doesn't really mean anything to them. They're going to they're going to continue forward uh, seeking that power, putting themselves in, themselves in the mix, regardless of uh, how many spankings or smackdowns they get from uh, from the uh, citizens, you know, from the electorate uh, who are obviously minor, you know, just a sort of a speed bump in the, in the uh, path in the quest for uh, power. Tyler Nixon on today's News Talk, TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. The Net Zero Con will leave millions of citizens dependent on state handouts. It isn't a theory. It's an agenda. There is no climate emergency. On air 24-7. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. This is TNT, today's News Talk. Thank you for rejoining us. Big thank you to Basil Valentine. Great commentary great analysis in the last segment if you miss any of this by the way on the live broadcast you can always catch us on the various podcasting platforms but especially at tntradio.live just go to the patrick henningson show you'll see the archives on below our show page you can watch and listen afterwards at your leisure so that's one of the services that tnt provides for the listeners for our viewers it's a fantastic service it's definitely audience centric so they're there to serve our audience, and this is what this network is all about as well. That's where their values are. I want to bring on uh, a guest as well, our research assistant for the show, Christian James. He's joining us right now on the live link. Christian, how are you? I'm really good. Thank you, Patrick. Yourself? How is it all with yourself, man? All is good. It's cold here uh, in Moscow. Uh, more about that later in the week uh, as well. So we got an interesting uh, uh, trip here politically as well. Interesting to see things that are going on in this part of the world. It's definitely another part of the world. It operates on a totally different plane uh, politically, energetically as well and in the West. So we'll talk more about that as well. But what's interesting as well is there's a lot of talk about the uh, Eurasia um, the Eurasia continent, uh, Europe and Asia, and that relationship going forward. India is an important part of that. I know you've been looking at an interesting story, there are many interesting stories out of India, but it, we all see this connection with Israel uh, and India Christian, which is very interesting, especially in light of what's going on in Gaza right now. But um, on, on the India-Israel issue, what's the latest that you're looking at? Well, so ultimately, how I came across this topic is I was looking to follow up on the farmers' protest because farmers' protests are also replete happening all across um, India at the present time, particularly in the northeast of the uh, the country in Haryana, where we have they're facing a farmers' protest heading down to New Delhi, and what they have decided to do is ultimately re-engage that. Uh, connection they have with Israel. So Israel and India have been in bed for somewhat uh, of time. Since 2018, they have had a particular military and uh, private contractor um, connection. And what that is ultimately is they want to and have done since the 8th of February is to roll out drone surveillance of those people who are protesting. 
So the idea is, is that they're using uh, facial recognition technology in regards to um, observing those who are talking out, those who are protesting on the streets, those who are unfortunately they're facing a terrible situation where you have um, farmers who get far less. We talk about what's happening with the um, depression of the quality and the price of food across France and Germany and Slovakia and, and all the regions that are around Europe from what's coming out of the, uh, Ukraine, what's forcing the uh, the volume of the the money equal value back from the goods and services. In India, they face a much more drastic situation as different areas of India compete, obviously, for the best price. Um, out of that particular section, um, you have cattle wealth coming out of there, milk products come out of there. But what's happening, those particular farmers, not only are they finding themselves um, rejecting what's happening to their progress they're having of surveillance happening on the 8th of february also was the day when india's government of this particular region started dropping tear gas upon those people and these uh tear gas drones and the surveillance drones are supplied by israel so uh and they have been working on this in fact i have to come back to a comment that i saw uh, as a quote this past week, um, where, where did I make a, a note of this? Really just talking about, we have studied their systems in detail, it says. This is uh, Anil Kumar Rao, who's the head of, of Haryana's um, uh, police, de police department. It says, we have studied their system in detail, Israel, and we prepare to submit and support the state government to such a system that can be replicated here and hurry on. So the idea is they want to surveil, they want to... The practice of what Israel is doing to Gaza is the template of which they want to do to the farmers in Haryar. So this is a replica of a situation that could go south very quickly. Um, these um, drones, again, have been dropping tear gas upon the people, on the people who are protesting there. And they also, when they go to the hospitals, when they go for medical assistance, they are then being picked up and arrested uh, because, of course, they're going in there with their, their eyes bleeding and their, their face, of course, in a situation where they need to be cleaned up in order to, to see again. Uh, a number of people have been blinded also because they have been rolling out the use of uh, lead-based um, bullets. Um, they are, they are hard-tipped. They're designed not to penetrate the body. However, a number of head injuries have occurred. So far, three people have gone blind um, due to this uh, rollout of the system that they have been doing. Also, this uh, drone imaging and technology information system has also uh, that has been funded now by, by, by India's government of this particular area. And uh, their chief minister, Mr. Kata, uh, says this system now is called Adrishir. And uh, he now means to accelerate this drone program to other areas of India that are also facing these protests. So here you have a combination now of this state surveillance system, obviously coming quite down hard on people who are in even a more desperate situation than the farmers are over here. So you're saying that, uh, you know, a country like Israel is kind of road testing this technology uh, in places like Gaza, which, you know, the international community, uh, the International Courts of Justice is a genocide case going on against Israel. So they, they're road testing this stuff, perfecting it uh, in, in the really extreme military field. And it's ready to be deployed for what? Crowd suppression? Regular political yeah, protests? It, absolutely. It appears to be now a template that is now being rolled into areas who wish to have their authoritarian state and their, their control of their populations and citizens in much the same way. The, uh, Israel, the Israeli system now is obviously clearly, it, it's perfected to the point 
where it is, is, it is a brutalist regime against the, the Gazan people and the way that they control them. Um, it rolls on to another um, connected story um, between Palestine, between Israel and between India as well. What's happening is um, with the advent of this alleged war going on between Israel and, uh, and Gaza, 72,000 uh, Palestinians are no longer in employment in Israel, where they were being employed mainly as construction workers, as farm workers, as people who were laborers. So there was a, even under the terrible apartheid situation they face, they were employed to some degree. Um, so what's happened is Israel has now gone to India and says, from the very same reason, from um, they want to, they're facing this regime change in India, is they now wish to pick up between 50 and 90,000 Indians who have now signed up or are signing up around the block, quite literally, because of the situation they face. So as, um, as the Palestinians now lose their jobs in Israel, um, they are now being also systematically being replaced by Indians who are also in this, a very similar situation. Um, from what I'm also reading, those who have found themselves to be in Israel are now finding themselves under the situation of, of a whip and chain, quite literally, in worse conditions than what they've come out of. So we have this terrible kind of roundabout system that's happening of uh, oppression and um, just unhumanness, the way that they are treating these people. And now they want to replace their working population with people who are now being kept in the same condition that they kept the Palestinians when they were working. Yeah, that's a little bit disturbing. Elba Systems uh, in, in the UK, there's one of these sort of companies that uh, does uh, really important drone tech. Uh, there's been a lot of protests there to shut that plant down by pro-Palestinian anti-war uh, demonstrators in the UK. Uh, so it's, they're probably involved as well there. So this uh, emerging tech sector, Christian, uh, this sort of asymmetric warfare, that's what drones were initially. Now they've kind of gone into the policing business um, as well. But uh, again, these are in some cases lethal. So that's interesting. We have the Israeli involvement uh, with the tech, uh, but then we have this connection where Indians want badly uh, to get sent to Israel for, uh, I guess, uh, overseas uh, income opportunities uh, for residency, for maybe, who knows, citizenship. I'm not sure about Israel for that, uh, for anyone from India. But uh, that is an interesting development, too. Uh, that I'm sure there's a lot of labor that has left the country. As you said, the Palestinians are no longer uh, allowed to work uh, in the Israeli territories. That's going to open up the door for other people, maybe Ethiopian, uh, as well as Sudanese, uh, for instance, as an example. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a development that... Uh, is going to be interesting going forward um, as Israel becomes more dysfunctional. Uh, the longer this goes on, uh, you're going to start seeing perhaps at some point some of the professors are going to be bolting uh, as well. Uh, maybe where they may have taken a less political stance, they're going to take a much harder one now uh, because of what's happened. So this is an interesting kind of multi, uh, multi-angled multi story, Christian. Uh, but we also want to move on. I know you've got a couple other things you want to share with us before we go to break. Go ahead. Yeah, really just, just coming out of that situation, I mean, really you have um, large volume work permits now being obviously granted to the Indians. Like you said, also Sudanese, Ethiopians, Eritreans, they're obviously making uh, moves because they want to get out of their situation they have. I, I still wonder how much they know about the situation they're going into, of how the Palestinians were treated in those work conditions. 
uh, that will now they'll also face those um, situation. So I saw a few of the the comments being made by people who, of course, are in unit who are in that situation, and they're talking about you know it, it, it's basically just inhumane uh, treatment that they are experiencing as workers. They now have also had their passports declined when they want to leave the country. So there's this weird exodus of people wanting to come in just to get away from their situation. Now also they find themselves now cannot leave. The Israel situation um, all around it, all around this uh, recruitment. So there, it really is a weird, twisted drive to move people around. Um, uh, whether this is to uh, Israel's benefit, we're not quite sure. But clearly, they are going to. Um, the way that they're controlling this situation is clearly quite uh, replete down from the top down level across all these people. And maybe it's just the way just to have essentially a slave caste within your country. Yeah, I've noticed as well when the hostages were being released, uh, the Israeli hostages, some of the early, you remember back in November when they had that sort of brief pause, and a lot of them were uh, Thai, They're sort of yeah. Thai workers on the kibbutz. So it's like seeing Indonesians, we're seeing Thais, uh, like you said, uh, maybe some, some other uh, similar sort of people there from India, for instance. So that's an interesting thing in, in, in Israel, especially the kibbutz used to be kind of communist uh, kind of communes. Uh, and that was a big sort of defining thing for the early Israeli national identity it was this kind of communist or collectivist utopia with the kibbutz really symbolizing that as a sort of place to live uh, and work. But they're already subcontracting out to, you know, the global south, as it were, uh, Christian there. So full on globalization, uh, even for Israel. But um, certainly these are interesting stories. We're going to sort of touch maybe on what's remaining there and also move on uh, to another uh, few blockbuster uh, stories that we're going to cover on the other side. We'll take a short break right now with TNT, today's news talk. When we come back, I'm with Christian James, and we've got a few more important key issues uh, to delve into uh, before we wrap up this segment at the top of the hour. I'm Patrick Henningsen. Stay with us. We'll be right back. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Scientists are freaking out over how warm the ocean has gotten. They should freak out. You know why? Because it's proof that it cannot be man-made. CO2 back radiation only penetrates the top millimeter or two of the oceans. So what's warming the ocean? Well, if you've been listening and following some of my writings, it appears logical and appears obvious that this has to be natural, specifically geothermally driven. Now, there are some other arguments out there. The solar people say because of the reduction of incoming rays, it could be affecting the cloud cover. However, as a meteorologist, I could tell you why there's less cloud cover over the tropics. If it warms, and it's going to be distorted warming because of what we call the thermal halion circulation, if it warms more away from the equator than around the equator, it affects the vertical velocity patterns, which lessen the upward motion over the tropical oceans, and guess what happens? You have less clouds. Now, I'm not going to get into argument with my solar friends. I will tell you this, those scientists that are panicking over how warm the ocean is getting should be panicking because it means that they can't possibly be right as to the cause and their gravy train should come to an end. I'd be panicking too. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. This is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. 
Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to this live broadcast. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for joining us. We're live and direct uh, for these two hours. We're in the final segment here of the final hour. Pleased to be joined by our research assistant for the show, Christian James, joining us on the line uh, right now. Christian, uh, you know, one of the big transitions uh, that we see in the West, especially, uh, is the move towards a cashless society. We saw this really come into shape during the whole COVID uh, Farago, the hysteria, uh, where everyone was afraid to use cash because the virus would be sort of climbing on the cash and then magically leaping onto people uh, from the cash. That turned out to be a totally fake establishment conspiracy theory. But nonetheless, it helped to accelerate uh, the move to cashless purchases. Now, we travel around other parts of the world. For instance, where we're at this week uh, in Russia, uh, we'll see cash is still king. A lot of people are using cash constantly. Uh, so in, in, despite the so-called inconvenience of cash, is how inconvenient is it really? Is it really that expensive? All these things are important questions. Um, so what's your take on this and what's developing in this area? Okay, so what's developing in the UK, of course, is we have a, a large push now towards uh, cashless. You see it on billboards everywhere. Most shops are offering uh, essentially cashless uh, payments. A lot of the shops are now incentivized by having essentially the tap and pay system is now for businesses. Um, it's actually really cheap to access now. At uh, one time, the idea was that every time there was a card purchase, uh, the shop had to pay a, a fee to Visa, to MasterCard, to Maestro, to Switch, and so on. Uh, that, that cost now has now been minimized due to what's happened is you now have third-party aggregators who have come in and effectively taken up that goal. And it allows the shops, the businesses across the country to have a to obtain more of the money when a customer makes, makes a purchase. So for the business uh, ends, from small businesses to medium businesses, let alone the businesses and the enterprises right now, um, it's really favorable to go cashless because it's cheaper. It's a much uh, friendlier way of dealing with money. You don't have to go to and away from the bank. So there is a movement to do this. Like you said there, there was a, there was a massive fear, obviously, going through the, the pandemic, the the pandemic, one would say, about the viruses being on coins. So the idea was that if you put them in the machine, that would then pass to other people. I saw uh, in the business that I work in, I obviously I work in the retail sector in a management uh, capacity, and I saw these uh, policies being uh, being implemented in the, uh, the 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 ATM cash points, for instance. They had some money that was coming in that was being screened and being bleached as it came in. Very odd practice. Uh, the idea was all the services and where money was being held had to be wiped down every 30 seconds. Um, but what's happened in the UK, we have uh, a number of major supermarket chains. Um, and one particular one, formerly owned by Walmart, it's called Asda. Um, and that particular supermarket now has 717 supermarkets and chains and stores all across the country. Well, now eight or there's an eighth of those, so more than 200 of those stores are intending to go cashless only. So they will not take any cash, uh, any points um, through any of their transactions and services. It'll all be uh, entirely cashless. Now, this is to move to a 45% increase by 2025, as there also plans to open 100 plus stores over the next year or so, all of which are going to be cashless. So you can imagine in terms of the logistics backstage, the admin, the uh, the, the cash um system inside the, inside the store will no longer operate. So for those businesses, potentially, it may be they now have less staff working uh, in those positions, less colleagues in those roles entirely. Um, but the point here is that 
now there's less places in which to engage with cash. There's now less money going into the system. So it makes it easier for those who wish to have a, a potentially a global planned currency, a central bank digital currency here, what can measure your movements and what you do and where you go and what you're spending on, uh, much easier to do. Um, and I think it's going to it's going to force a lot of people uh, out of those what were originally uh, very easy to go shop experiences. I mean, a lot of the the elder population will use the major big four supermarkets um, for their general shopping. They now might feel that they are being ostracized and pushed out. I've seen adverts and like a typical kind of TikTok shorts and um, YouTube shorts of people going into shops and they are getting refused because they did not have the cash to pay for it. And the the person, the the the, the barman or the uh, or the coffee steward, as it were, uh, is unable to complete the transaction simply because they don't take cash anymore. And that creates quite a, quite a conflict between them. People have seen being thrown their cash at them, being left on the desk and walking out. And then they're calling the police upon them because they didn't pay, even though they physically did. Um, I think it's going to create a lot of frustrations. Uh, my son recently came back from Japan and uh, he noticed over there there's an interesting um, situation in regards to their ATM systems, their um, cash machines. They're actually only open at certain periods of the day. Um, the ones in the airport, the ones in the uh, the kind of populous places, they're open all the time. But the general ones that are out in the uh, in the public, as it were, are only open between nine and ten, uh, so nine and twelve in the morning, only for a very limited period of time, because there's a fear that actually they will take too much money out of the system. There's a limit on how much money you can take at, at any one time from your bank account, regardless of how much money you have in there. Um, so he tried to take out like I think it was like. 200 uh, pounds um, and he he had a limit on that of 100 pounds being taken out in yen over there. There's just a limit on the periods of time that you can take cash out of the system. And I wonder how long that kind of system will take to be implemented over here. And now that's- well, I, the, the numbers are staggering uh, out of Scandinavia, Christian, in terms of cashless uh, transactions, something crazy. It's like 90% uh, in Sweden. I mean, so they've, uh, as a country, Sweden's pretty much done it, you know, in terms of going totally cashless. So, so smacks of, you know, obviously people are like, you know, technocracies, things like this. Scandinavia going completely technocratic. Well, it got, on that front, it sort of looks like they are. Now, those numbers are catching up uh, in Western Europe, in the UK, uh, whereby a couple of years ago, maybe it was 50-50, maybe it was like 60-40. Now we're getting up into the higher percentiles on this. So now it's a, getting close to like, you know, 70-30 in the, in the UK. I don't know if you actually looked at the numbers on any of this stuff, but the trend lines are going in one direction. Yeah, and I think that the reason for that is, is that there's less access to cash. And it is much easier, in theory, to be carrying around a card is the equivalent of what your money is. I mean, it, it's certainly simple just to tap or just to put your pin in and you pay the transaction automatically. That feels quite comfortable. It's supposed to be a representation of the value you have earned that you have in your, in your credit or to your ownage. But now, of course, that is one step away from the central bank digital currency. So I think the bankers would say, those who wish to have their global implementation could say, well, look how easy it is. It won't be any different for these people who are interacting and, and traversing in this way. But of course, it, it takes away the secondhand market. It takes away essentially the black market. It takes away those who are just transacting between each other. Uh, the ability to you know, pay anonymously. The idea is that you could pay between each other. You know, I could pay for your service and, um, and that will disappear. And 
they, that is actually a core of every country's basis of, of economy, whether we like to say it or not. I mean, ultimately, cash is king. I mean, there's a reason for that. Um, and I, I'm talking of cash is king, of course. Now, this very week, the, the first coins go out in the UK that have uh, King Charles actually on the coins. Um, so they're going to be quite popular over the course of the next few weeks or so, getting picked up by collectors. Cash is king, literally in the UK, or the king is cash. Uh, king Charles, I still call him Prince uh, Christian. Old habits die hard. It is Prince hard, isn't it? Time. <laughs> yeah. Is this it, is going to be a big even obstacle. Like, even like the Prince's Trust, for instance, is still called the Prince's Trust. Um, so that hasn't actually migrated yet uh, to be the King's Trust. I guess that's what happened. Yeah, well, how... How is Charles doing? How is uh, old uh, King Charles doing? He's got uh, some health issues he's been battling uh, in recent uh, months. So obviously everyone's concerned about that. Uh, what is the status on uh, on the new king? Have you heard anything? To my understanding, from what I have read, and it is only minimal stuff that I have read in terms of uh, royal engagements, it is he has gone home. I believe he's in Sandringham at the present time. And uh, Queen Camilla is obviously with him, taking care of him. I believe he had a, had a heart attack or some kind of chest issue. Um, it may be related. Did he get the jab? We don't know. I'm not sure about that. Um, it might be related. But I guess there is an upper limit on his age. You know, he's certainly uh, he's getting up there now. Um, there was also talk that would he abdicate straight to... Uh, his children to his sons and that he potentially would pass him over um that hasn't happened so i guess they are going to continue the lineage style system um but he may well be there till the end as it were till he's like his mother did like queen elizabeth did um but in terms of his royal engagements he obviously hasn't been interacting with the the uh the general public as much as he has done just because i guess when you hit you know you're hitting nearly 80 years of age you know there's a limit on what your body is capable of doing and, and i guess he has been well looked after by the highest uh, of level of medical practitioners here so it is going to be interesting to see what does happen over the next few years uh but ultimately he's away from public life at the present time i guess on his recovery and uh, we've got a couple minutes left i know you've got a, a, another story you want to share with us but uh go ahead christian yeah, so this, the story I'd like to cover is, I guess, ultimately, this particular week here, the very last week of February, going into the first week of March, is very important um, in regards to the Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week. Paris Fashion Week takes care, and um, they kind of, they're planning for essentially six months out, what is going to be the fashion, the trends, the key points, the political notes uh, in six months' time. It's worth talking about because, of course, this week, um, the Paris Fashion Week has actually been taken over, as it often does, why so many political messages and a few things I wanted to talk about that really tie into what's happening in Israel, what's happening with Palestine. Um, so Ackerman and Jean-Paul Gaultier's, uh, they had a big show, of course, but that went out on Monday. They, interesting enough, they used the song Brare from uh, Shavin Japur, which is the, that was the freedom song uh, for those who are aware of that, or that was being used for the Israel, um, sorry, Israel, the, the, the Iranian women who were protesting against the revolutionary protest in Iran. So that particular song featured in all of their uh, fashion uh, catwalk and stages. So also the founders of the German fashion label GmbH, um, Uzbek and Isseg, they were very prevalent in their speeches and their talks and their art style because they believe their fashion is their art, of course, talking about obviously what's happening in Gaza. They also feel, and they've been talking about how all the... The fashion companies are predominantly Israel-led. They're predominantly very Israel-friendly. And uh, they have been talking about how they feel oppressed right now. 
in the art world and in the the fashion world just because they're choosing to side with with gaza and uh, choosing to side with palestine and they are now feeling the uh, the effect even though they are the largest fashion brand that exists in germany um, they are from it is very much a, a muslim orientated uh, fashion brand uh, that is the two owners of that that brand so they obviously are aligned very much with, with gaza over there um so that they have created this now split divide that's happening in what effectively is a very liberal world a very kind of uh, liberal arts your know, creative arts on the on the stages of catwalks of paris uh, what's happened also in paris you have ralph Lauren, chanel showing their voice for israel and not showing up to the um, Ekerman and uh, the GMH, GMBH's um, demonstration of, of their art. Um, but also within Paris itself, there've actually been massive lockdowns that have been happening around the buildings. Um, the state uh, public transport in, in, in around going to the venues has actually been stopped. They've been protesting against their wages and rates and so on. They're siding with the farmers and much, much more. Um, so it literally is a, a protest uh, within a particular week that has uh, dominated uh, certainly uh, the fashion news and the art world um, over the course of the last week or so. And um, there's more messages in regards to that. So also more brands have actually pulled out of the, the fashion week uh, because they don't want to be involved with the protest. They are taking that kind of UK stance. They don't want to be involved. So now potentially there's going to be less art being shown off on the catwalk so less companies are going to be copying them um as what will come out um, towards the end of the year i mean fashion is not really my thing but i did see how many protests were happening or, or tied in to the stories or were interlinked with each other i thought was really interesting um and how um now you they face a situation where there's less money in fashion now there is an environmental factor uh, i saw extinction rebellion were over there they were talking about how of course, all the dyes and all the, uh, the the slavery that happens, obviously China and obviously India and Bangladesh, where these clothes are made and the high fashion, the uh, the climate and the environmental agenda that it's affecting. Either you have to ship all these uh, clothes to other parts of the world, uh, the terrible environmental impacts that it's having. So all these things kind of tie in together uh, for what should be a highlight, perhaps, of the, the, the fashion world. But in fact, it's gone the opposite way. It's just been a week highlighting protests. Uh, people have been walking on stage dressed as trees. I saw people walking down the catwalks with massive signs um, on some pictures. Um, it, it's a bit of a free-for-all, really, but uh, it's interesting. To, it highlights all the different positions that are being um, being explored right now, from the farmers' protests to Israel to Gaza to um, just fashion at a core environmental climate change. Um, it, it's just an absolute menagerie of, um, of on stage, really. And everyone's talking about it from every different angle. So I think everyone is going to get something out of this, regardless of their political position. You know, we're seeing more of this uh, politicization and activists sort of taking over uh, a lot of these uh, sectors. Of course, fashion has got a lot of politics attached to it. But I noticed that uh, they don't really like going deep and too pithy on their sort of political causes. It's usually a bit of virtue signaling, something, you know, spray painted on the back of a designer jacket or what have you, and Posh Spice or whoever wearing it uh, there in the front row. Um, so this this activism bleeding into something like Fashion Week, we've seen it before, but it's like we're seeing all this activism in favor of Palestine. It's actually having an impact in a lot of different areas. So while this stuff might have been cool and trendy and might amount to nothing more than virtue signaling a couple of years ago, um, now it's quite serious because there there is a move in public sentiment and public opinion, isn't there, in the West? There is, yeah. So the two guys who run the GMBH brand, 
um, Uzbek and Iraq actually mentioned something quite interesting that I wasn't quite, I didn't know about. Like, it's something I need to actually dig into about it. That uh, in Germany, uh, where they come from, actually protests um, have been banned recently. And uh, they mentioned, that, of course, that is a, an effect of your free speech and so on. Um, and they, it's actually a statement, what's called uh, Stratzrasen. Um, could be terrible, I could be butchering that pronunciation. But it's called a reason of state and the principle that anyone who, who places support, um, I should reiterate this, and I do apologize. So it's, if you have Stratzrasen, it means if you place support for Gaza or you place support for Israel, a public statement, uh, your, your, your protest will be shut down because you should be supporting uh, the Jews in regards to Israel. And that apparently is now a German political position that you're not allowed to protest uh, in support of Gaza or Palestine at all. And that's really why they wanted to put it onto Farish, Paris Fashion Week's uh, main centre stage as part of their show. Uh, I hope, have you seen anything regarding that yourself, Patrick? No, I haven't, but um, I, I do see uh, on some of the big high-profile events, um, the, the the Gaza issue is coming to the fore. Um, so I think the risk that a lot of celebrities or fashion designers or artists have taken before in you know criticizing Israeli policy as, as an example, um, those risks have been dialed down considerably because of the sort of growing body of uh, people in terms of public awareness on this issue and more people becoming gradually anyway in the west more sympathetic towards the palestinian position so you know the arts uh fashion music all these areas are going to be ripe uh going forward so i think we're going to see a lot of interesting uh creative uh activity in these sectors uh and it will become politicized because it's undeniable christian this is the biggest issue of our generation that's really going to define the west and what their moral sort of compass is on this but uh, yeah your final thoughts before we break christian yeah i mean ultimately i mean i just kind of echoing there to um artists uh, statements that they said they've seen lots of constellations of the art sector artists writers musicians um not aligning with german state policy in regards to the support for israel are facing being cancelled entirely so i think that is right that is going to be the the big message now that is going to ripple across the essentially the, the creative sectors i mean in the uk the creative sectors here are actually closing up uh, left right and center I mean, there's uh, Nottingham, where I live, is, is a massive creative hub for uh, musicians and music and art and so on. And they're finding their venues are closing. Their um, their whole statement appears to be just folding in on itself at present time, just because out of policy, out of the policy of politics, when what you talk about is actually the reason why you're often getting cancelled, your shops are getting closed. Um, it's purely politics. Politics now is driving more than people ever imagined it could do. No, for certain, for certain. As there's still a backlash. There's a lot of censorship going on. People are being leveled with accusations of anti-Semitism, if you want to take that issue, for instance. But uh, same with Ukraine. Obviously, if you're not showing a sufficient sympathy for the Ukrainian cause or you're showing yourself to be a little bit too pro-Russian or the Russian position, sympathizing with that, uh, that's also causing a lot of people to get, quote, canceled. Uh, from a lot of things uh, right across the board in the West. So uh, those two issues definitely, in a way, have broken uh, a lot of the sort of the stale sort of oppression that's been going on for years. Those two issues have really broken out the conversation, and it couldn't have come at a better time. So I think we're still going to see the positive ripple effects of this uh, going forward for quite some time, maybe forever. I do think the world has changed, Christian, in, in, a, in a way that's probably 
quite possibly permanent, um, how that's going to shape up, manifest to steer the U.S., for instance, towards a political outcome. That's just unknown at this point. But uh, Christian James, our research assistant for the show, really appreciates you joining us on TNT. Today. No, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Patrick. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And likewise, uh, follow Christian on X Twitter. We tagged him on our show post there at 21 Wire. Listen, you guys, thank you for joining us today. We've covered a lot of ground today. It's been a couple of amazing discussions. Thank you, Benjamin Rubenstein. Always a pleasure. Basil Valentine, amazing as always. And Christian James, our research assistant for the show, bringing us the stories and the discussions that we're not getting elsewhere. We appreciate all of you as well listening and watching TNT Today's News Talk, especially our TNT chat community that hang out during the Patrick Henningsen show. That's me, Patrick Henningsen, signing out. Listen, take care, you guys. I'll see you same time, same place tomorrow.